At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm Farah Jassat. And before we go to this week's episode, I want to share some exciting news. We've recently launched Intelligence Squared Plus, a new digital subscription service for online events. If you're a fan of our podcast, you can now listen to them while they're being recorded. You can join our most high-profile speakers in live, interactive online events and ask your questions directly to them from the comfort of your home. We have an amazing lineup over the coming months, from authors like Margaret Atwood and Salman Rushdie to big thinkers like the New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman and the economist Thomas Piketty, as well as the big names in arts and culture like the singer Paloma Faith, chef Yotam Atalengi and podcaster Elizabeth Day. If you still need convincing, here's a message from our friend Stephen Fry. Hello, I'm Stephen Fry and I'd like to encourage you to subscribe to Intelligence Squared Plus, the new and very modestly priced digital subscription service from my friends at Intelligence Squared. You would, I think, be hard-pressed to find an organisation that better presents and supports debate, discussion and civilised, rigorous conversation, perhaps never before has the world needed all of these things quite so keenly. Perhaps you'll be kind enough to support Intelligence Squared by signing up for this service. It only costs £5 a month. Do consider it. Thank you very much indeed. So there you have it. If you're interested, please do click on the link in our podcast description or go to intelligencesquared.com. We hope to see you virtually at one of our online events very soon. And I'll now hand over to my colleague Connor to tell us more about this week's episode. Thank you, Farah. And hello, podcast listeners. This week, we have Robert H. Frank for you, author of the new book, Under the Influence, putting peer pressure to work. And Robert spoke to Linda Yu, economist and broadcaster, who many of you will know as a regular host on Intelligence Squared, all about why peer pressure influences our behaviour. And if we want to see real change in the world, the best place to start might be by creating more socially supportive environments. So it's a really interesting conversation and we hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Linda Yu. I'm an economist at London Business School and the University of Oxford. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. Robert, welcome. And I just want to start off with a story that you start off with in the book, which is about how we are all connected and where the concept of six degrees of separation comes from. Do tell us for the listeners. Oh, it's an old idea, really. There, there was a, a Czech short story that explored it. The idea was that everyone on the planet is connected to everyone else through a chain of five or six mutual acquaintances. 
the I didn't idea didn't go anywhere for a long time, but then a psychologist at Yale, Stanley Milgram, attempted to test it. He he sent instructions to people in the Midwest, a little packet that he wanted them to forward to a friend who would then forward it to another friend and so on until it ultimately reached a named person who lived in Boston, Massachusetts. The person was male. He was in the financial services industry and he had this address in Boston. You didn't know anything else about him. You were supposed to pick a friend whom you knew by a first name whom you thought would be closer in some way to the ultimate recipient. And and to his amazement, he sent out about uh, 96 of these packets. Uh, 18 of them made it to the final destination, which to me is astonishing because most people, I'm guessing, threw it in the trash straight away. A small minority probably tried to follow the instructions, but, but uh, out, out of that unknown number, 18 of them made it. It was really quite remarkable. And I think there have been subsequent studies, much more formal, that have demonstrated that we're really way more connected than anyone ever imagined. Mm. This leads me to the second question for you, which is we're all connected, which actually means that we're all subject to influence and influencing others and being influenced. So you also give us the origin of the meme in the book. So I'm going to quote something you quote in the book. Biologist Richard Dawkins describes the meme is to cultural transmission as the gene is to biological transmission. So it's about the spread of ideas, good and bad, isn't it? Yes. Uh, Dawkins had in mind the notion that, that certain concepts, ideas, behaviors had greater staying power than others. They were more likely to be transmitted from one person to another. The successful ones, the ones that propagated, were much like successful genes. In in general, a gene that succeeds has good effects on the individual, but that's not always true. Uh, And it's the same with memes. Uh, The the ideas that that have staying power and that transmit easily aren't necessarily the ones that are good for us. Sometimes they are, maybe even more often than not, but not always. So we are going to explore that just in a little bit, because that's really the subtitle of your book, isn't it? Putting peer pressure to good use. Mm. So, But before we get there, I just want to explore a little bit more about the impulse to conform. You tell a fantastic story, which is a scene by the creator of Candid Camera. So tell us about this story. Yeah, I like this example. Somebody asked, what's the most vivid example you've come across of our impulse to follow what others do? And and I've not found in, in many decades, I've not found an example that's more vivid than this one. And it's a, it, it's a simple scene. Funt, the director of Candid Camera, made a film. And one of the episodes in it is he places an ad for this unbelievably good-sounding job. It has a high rate of pay. The degree requirements aren't aren't terribly stiff. It doesn't sound like a very difficult job. What's the catch, you would ask yourself. But a lot of people signed up. They wanted to interview for this job. He scheduled appointments. And in the scene we see, a man shows up for his interview. An assistant shows him into the waiting room. Uh, there are already four other men sitting in there waiting. So he's seated. The film goes on about its business. business. It shows various other scenes. It keeps coming back. Still, nothing's happening in this room. The five men are sitting there quietly. 
It comes back another time with a close-up of the subject's face, the subject being the last guy to arrive. We, the viewer, know that the other four are confederates of Alan Funt. Uh, the subject does not know that. The subject's face is impassive, as it has been throughout, but all of a sudden he looks agitated. And why is he so upset? The camera pulls back to show that the other four have, at no apparent signal, uh, stood up and have begun taking, taking off all their clothing. And the subject looks more and more agitated until finally, uh, again, a look of calm comes across his face. And he too stands and takes off all of his clothing. And the scene ends. There are all five of them standing there waiting for what comes next. Uh, and, and, and when I saw that scene in, in the film long ago, my, my first reaction was, no way would I have done that. And, and of course, we don't know how many people he had to run through the drill before he got the footage he wanted. But, but the fact is some people did do that. And and I think it's easy to dismiss them as weak-willed or, or just mindlessly following peer examples. But if you think about it from the perspective of the job candidate, he doesn't know what's going on. The other four got there before he did. If anybody knows what the drill is, it's one of them or all of them. They seem to know what to do. They get up confidently and, and go through the, the next steps. It's his choice. Do I maintain my my – spot in the queue for this job? Or do I say, no, I'm out of here. And and you can't really find fault with him for thinking, well, maybe I'll, I'll take the next step and see what happens. <laughs> wow, that's a, that's a great illustration. <laughs> um, you explain FOMO, the fear of missing out. So it's a similar concept, and you describe it as one of the most powerful drivers for investors, for voters. So you write about how it's not entirely irrational. No, I think if you're an investor, uh, you, your, your concern is that somebody out there knows something that you don't know. Uh, and, and much of the time, that's, of course, true. If you see the price of a stock you hold falling suddenly, uh, it's quite possible that somebody knows something material about the prospects of the company that has led him or her to sell the stock. Others, others see that and are fearful that there'll be a, a sustained price drop in the, in the stock. And so rather than, than, you know, hold the stock and suffer those losses, there's a rush to dump it quickly. And then that can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. The stock will go down even if the first movement was a completely random step. It can work, of course, the other way. And that's where you really see the fear of missing out. Somebody knows something about this company. It's going to explode in, in, in the months ahead. If I don't buy now, I'll be missing the boat. So, so yeah, we see it going both ways. And, and again, it's just taking cues from people who you think might know something that's better informed than what you know. It's not necessarily irrational, but you need to be measured in your judgment about when to do that. It can obviously get you into trouble. <laughs> in fact, there's whole investment theories around it, isn't it? Hurting behavior. For Momentum instance. investors, all yeah. this stuff. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I think if, if anybody asks for advice, just do what Harold Pollack, the, the economist at Chicago, says. He, he says all, all you need to know about investing is – 
summarizable on the back of an in- index card, you know, save a, a lot each each month, put it all in, in index funds and, and don't worry about it. Uh, just leave it alone. <laughs> so all of these examples go to the kind of greater social context, our propensity to conform, bit of FOMO or hurting um, behavior, not entirely irrational. We're, we're responding to the social context. And this kind of leads me to the kind of the argument in your book about what that implies for mm-hmm. policymaking. So once you observe this kind of behavior, it does change, doesn't it, the premise of how economic policies, how public policies, which are underpinned by economic models, should be thinking about behavior and when the policies right. get implemented. Yeah, I think the standard economic models assume that we're all well-informed. We have pre- preferences that originate within us and we make decisions that are ours alone, taken in isolation. They're not affected by what others do. Uh, that's, of course, not the way the world works. The The argument of the book is actually quite simple. It's based on the the maxim of the psychologist uh, who says it's the situation, not the person. By that they mean if we see somebody behave in a certain way and we, we ask ourselves, why did she do that? The the impulse we have is to to say what kind of person would do such a thing. That's not a good way to think about it, the psychologists tell us. They say – Traits of personality and character are usually not the, the most important explanation for the behaviors we see. It's, it's really the social situation that, that is the most powerful determinant of what she'll choose in a, in a given setting. And so in the, in the case of smoking, if you're worried, if you have a teenage daughter, you're worried she might become a smoker. It really doesn't help you to know at all that she's a Manchester United fan. That doesn't predict anything. She's good in math. That doesn't tell you much either. She's a science fiction fan. Nope. Uh, uninformative. What you need to know is the proportion of her friends who smoke. And it's a huge effect. If if that number goes from 20% up to 30%, she becomes 25% more likely to become or remain a smoker. There's no other effect remotely as strong as that. So the social environment affects us. Uh, we don't Act in independence of it. We're, we're, I think that's, this is a, a well demonstrated fact, uncontroversial to say. It's also uncontroversial, I think, to, to note that we affect the social environment. It is, after all, just a consequence in the aggregate of our own individual choices. So the smoking rate that affects us, where did that come from? That's just the sum of all people who chose to smoke divided by the total number of people. That's the smoking rate. Nobody worries about his or her own choice and and what its effect will be on the social environment because the effect is essentially negligible from any individual's point of view. Why worry about that? And yet together our effect is is hugely, hugely important and since the social environment affects us so strongly both for good and ill – if there were some way that policymakers could encourage us to choose as if we cared about how our choices would affect the social environment, and if those policies that had that effect weren't for some reason objectionable in their own right, why wouldn't we want to consider implementing those? And so in the case of smoking, we did exactly that, although not for the reason I'm suggesting. We, we started taxing cigarettes 
and making it less convenient to smoke. We did that under the rationale that new studies had shown that exposure to secondhand smoke could contribute to various illnesses. In fact, those links show that there is harm from exposure to secondhand smoke, but the harm is minuscule compared to the harm from actually being a smoker. Okay, well, you could say uh, it's not the government's job to protect you from harming yourself. When John Stuart Mill said that, and I read his book as a junior in high school, I thought, yeah, that sounds right to me. But now as a an experienced behavioral scientist, I think that's a more interesting question than <laughs> I realized at the time. You know, uh, might I have an interest in in preventing my younger self from doing things that harm my my older self? Yeah, mm-hmm. perhaps perhaps so. But set that to one side. The the great harm we do, by far the greatest harm we do when we smoke, is to make other people more likely to smoke. Mm-hmm. And and the John Stuart Mill harm principle speaks clearly here. The only legitimate reason the government can restrain you from doing what you want to do is to prevent you from causing harm to others. When you smoke, you cause harm to others, not by secondhand smoke so much, although that is a, a minor harm, but making other people more likely to smoke. And and every parent wants his kid not to smoke. I, I mean, I, perhaps there's some strange parent out there who doesn't have that view, but mm. but it would be strange at least to, to hear a parent say, I hope my kid grows up to be a smoker. <laughs> Smokers don't want to smoke. They, they regret that they do. And so even if you don't want to count the harm to people who are induced to become smokers, you say, oh, that's their problem. They, they, they should resist those bad examples. What about the parents of all those kids who are going to become smokers because people in the peer group were smoking at a high rate? Don't we care about the energy they've invested their whole lives trying to raise their kids to be healthy? They're going to be disappointed because – too many people are smoking. Why wouldn't we want to lessen the injury to them then? Mm. So I think there, there are lots of reasons to consider intervening here. Mm. And just to kind of step back, you tell the story in the book of your own family and the context of when you were growing up and the prevalence of smokers to the present day where in America, actually, and the incidence of people smoking in public places has fallen a lot. And so just kind of uh, tell that story so we can kind of see the social context, how much has changed. Yeah, I, I was – I had a conversation with a friend and I said to him that if if my kids had grown up when I did – I have four sons. They're all adults now. If they'd grown up when, when I'd grown up, I told him that I thought at least two of them would have become smokers. One of my sons was present during this conversation. He immediately asked me, which two? Uh, and I said, well, my oldest for sure, David, Hayden, my youngest, I thought he would be too. What about me? He seemed offended that I didn't think he would have been a smoker. So maybe maybe three. Uh, I thought two, maybe three. When I was growing up, I started smoking at age 14. Uh, most of my friends had already been smoking for a year or two by then. It was quite common for teenagers to inhabit groups, most of whom smoked. My kids didn't smoke, not because I was a brilliant parent, but because most of their friends didn't smoke. And I think every parent, if given a choice, would would say, I'd much rather raise my kids in an environment where 14% of the adults are out there smoking than one in which there are 60% out there smoking, which is what it was when I was a kid. So so yeah, I think it's a huge benefit that we've reaped. Uh, 
the taxes by themselves wouldn't have given us that benefit. The, the, the fact of making it inconvenient to smoke wouldn't have had that big an, an effect unless you weave contagion into the narrative you don't get that big of a decline that quickly. The, some people didn't start because of the taxes or the inconvenience. Because they didn't start, few, fewer people had friends who smoked, so they were le less likely to start, and it just radiated out. If you don't have that contagion element in the narrative, you don't get the big reductions that we've seen. Mm. You know, it's a great example and a fascinating insight because I think a lot of I think a lot of people would think it's the the sin taxes, the very high rates of taxes that's actually caused people to to smoke less. But from the, what you're describing and all the behavioral scientists and the behavioral economists looking at it. It just looks like we have not paid enough attention to the social context. Yeah, it's, it really is the social dimension that, that's the main driver. But the taxes were a critical step in getting that, that first movement away mm -hmm. from the high smoking rate. And I think it's, it's clear people don't like to be taxed on, on anything that they do. But, but I think you have to step back. Some people, well, we see more of this in the States than you see here, but some people say all taxation is theft. Uh, those people really don't belong in the conversation at all. If you don't tax, then you don't have a government. You don't have an army. You get invaded by somebody that has an army and then you pay tax to them. So f set, set that view off to the side. The interesting questions are what should we tax and how much should we tax it? Right now, we tax a lot of things we shouldn't tax. We tax business payrolls. Why should we discourage companies from hiring workers? What a, what a bizarre thing to do. The good thing about taxing behaviors that degrade social environments that make people more likely to smoke, for example, is that you raise revenue when you do that and you can use every pound you raise from a tax like that, you can use to reduce the tax on a useful activity. Mm -hmm. So taxes are bad. Well, no, taxes are not bad. You need, need some taxes, but, but what should we tax? We should tax behaviors that cause harm to others. And there are so many instances in which what we do causes harm in these subtle ways. I, I, I call it behavioral externalities. Economists talk about externalities by which they mean typically things like smoke or noise or congestion, pollution. Yeah. Yeah, pollu to toxi toxic effluence and, and the like. But the, the argument of the book basically is that when you behave in a way that makes the social environment less supportive, that's a negative behavioral externality. And, and the, the logic of how to respond to behavioral externalities is exactly parallel to the arguments that we economists have used about pollution and other traditional externalities. Mm. It's time for a quick break, and then we'll be right back with Robert Frank. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hello, I'm Farah Jassat from Intelligence Squared. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Before we get back to it, I'd like to encourage you, our loyal podcast listeners, to subscribe to Intelligence Squared Plus, our new subscription service for online interactive events. 
Intelligence Squared brings together the world's top thought leaders and opinion formers, from Margaret Atwood, Thomas Friedman and Salman Rushdie, to Mehdi Hassan, Bernadine Evaristo and Elizabeth Day. Join us and take part in these exclusive online events where you can ask your questions directly to our speakers. It's only £5 a month and you get the first month completely free. Please do consider supporting Intelligence Squared and subscribe now by clicking the link in our podcast description. Thank you so much. Welcome back. I'm speaking with Robert Frank about his terrific new book, Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work. So we've been talking about behavioral economics. We've been talking about the ways in which economic models that underpin economic policy really needs to take into account peer influence, good and bad. So before we pick up that conversation, I just want to get in this quote by Amos Tversky, very well-known behavioral economist, who said, quote, my colleagues, they study artificial intelligence. Me, I study natural stupidity. <laughs> yeah, when, when behavioral economics started, it was really heavily shaped by Amos Tversky's work together with Danny Kahneman. Richard Thaler had worked with them for a year while he was away on a sabbatic. Uh, uh, he and I talked a lot when he got back from that visit. And, and I, I taught the first undergraduate behavioral economics course and, and I called it departures from rational choice. Uh, I, I sort of regret that title now because it led to a lot of empty debates about what it meant to be rational, but, but I, that, that is the title I chose for it. And, and I divided up the material into two se- segments, departures from rational choice with regret and departures without regret. And, and with regret departures were ones where you were, you were just making a cognitive mistake. You were taking sunk costs into account when you shouldn't. You were, you were misestimating the frequency of an event by using the availability heuristic, which is a misleading indicator often. You learn that you're making a mistake. You regret the fact that you're making one. You want to change your behavior. But there's a whole other class of, of instances. They're, they're, they're really collective action problems, many of them. It's like when everybody stands up to see better and nobody sees any better than if everybody had remained comfortably seated. That's not a cognitive error. You do that uh, quite rationally because if others are standing in front of you, you don't see it all unless you stand too. But, but from a collective vantage point, it's irrational that you're all standing. It would be better if you, you could all find some way to sit down. And I think when we follow one another's example in the world, uh, often that's a good thing. Some, some memes uh, lead us to the right destination. But, but in, in spending decisions, often we see outcomes that are very much like the, the stadium metaphor. Everyone stands to see better. Nobody. So we, we all bid a little extra for a house in a better school district. The, the good schools are, are invariably served uh, by, in the neighborhoods. They serve the, the neighborhoods where the houses are more expensive. If you want your kid to go to a better school, you buy a more expensive house. We all bid for the, the best school district we can. When we do that, even if we deplete our savings and take extra jobs to, to boost our bidding power, all we do is end up bidding the prices up of the houses in the better school districts, and half of all kids still attend bottom half schools the same as as always. So, so yeah, it would it, it would be good if we could find ways to scale back in 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 the inevitable pressures that we feel to act 
in accordance with what our peers are doing. So, mm. so much of the, the theme of the book is centered on that idea. Mm. Why are negative behaviors like smoking more contagious than positive ones like exercise? Ah, great question. There, there have, have been some reasonable conjectures about that. Uh, the one that I find most plausible is that if you want to do something that you know everyone approves of anyway, then you don't really need license to do that. You can do it if you want to go out and exercise. Nobody's going to give you any grief about doing that. It's when you want to do something that you know you shouldn't do that, that you feel some restraint about doing it. And when you see others doing it, in a way that gives you license to do it yourself. So I think that if there is an asymmetry, and I, I think there probably is one, it's, it's likely to come from that, that distinction. You say that most of us believe that our impact on the social context is negligible. So before the break, we're talking about it. So we tend to ignore it. But you argue we could choose better, which improves the environment, which would mean that it could bring out the best in all of us, if we could all improve the social environment around us. So you actually document how quickly attitudes can change. For instance, around gay marriage in the United States, you also talk about tipping points in terms of elections in, um, in different countries. So just say a bit more about why we should think harder about our impact on the rest of the context around us. Yeah, I think we come into the world with very few pre-formed beliefs. You know, a lot of debates are complicated. We don't we we don't know what to think about them. I think if you asked students today how they feel about human slavery, you would get uh, almost a unanimous response. Oh no, that's a bad thing. But most of today's students, I'm guessing couldn't reproduce the details of the debates that led societies to, to reach the judgment that, no, s slavery is really not okay. Why do people believe it's not okay? Because everybody they know believes it's not okay. And that's, that's not a bad reason for believing something necessarily. The, the fact is slavery is not okay. If we don't have to waste a lot of time figuring out why it's not okay, we, we have time free to devote to other other ideas that maybe are, are, are more urgent for us to find answers to questions there uh, than, than those old ones. But the, the fact is, often we believe things just because they've been traditional uh, and there's no real basis for them. Maybe there one, once was a basis, maybe there wasn't, but it's clear that uh, we often believe things that are not true. Uh, and and, and the issue of same-sex marriage seems to be a good example of that. Uh, in 1989, when uh, articles first started appealing, appearing, explaining in great detail why it would be good for the community if you let people marry whomever they please, uh, the, the general rate of approval of same-sex marriage was about 10%. Almost nobody was willing to say publicly that they thought that was an acceptable idea. Uh, even as recently as 2008, uh, both Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were publicly on record as opposed to same-sex marriage when, when the California state had a referendum about that question. Just uh, a few years later, 2015, the Supreme Court uh, handed down a decision declaring that every state had to allow 
people to marry anyone they please, same sex or opposite sex, it didn't matter. And now 70% of Americans say, yeah, why should we stand in the way of people marrying whom they please? And and it was it was dangerous to say you believe that when only 10% of the people believed it. But uh, if you say you believe that now, I mean, I'm not worried people are, are not going to buy my book because they hear me say that. In 1989, it would have been rational for somebody to worry, oh, if I say that, they won't hire me for the job I want or, the, or, or they'll discriminate against me in some way. So what we believe does depend, or, or what we're willing to say publicly that we believe depends uh, often very much on what others say they believe. You've already mentioned that taxes have, for instance, had an effect on smoking, but obviously it's the, it's the wider environment. But you argue in the book, we should use taxation instead of regulation for the government to intervene in order to promote beneficial social outcomes. So let's talk concretely about climate change. Okay. Why would something like a, a carbon tax be better than, say, regulation? You know, I, I don't mean to say that we need only to implement taxes or subsidies to, to steer behavior in different directions from what we'd see otherwise. But as an economist, I think that that's a, a bias that I share with many of my colleagues. A tax really is more forgiving of, of individual differences. So if there's somebody in the pollution realm that this was established early on, it's much more costly for some firms and individuals to cut back on their pollution than it is for others. We want to keep cutting pollution back as long as the benefit of the last unit we cut back is, is at least as great as the cost of cutting it back. So so a scheme that leads people to cut back the most, who can cut back the most cheaply, is is a good scheme. That's efficient. That reduces the cost of, of reducing pollution. And that's exactly the effect that a tax has. Those for whom it's most expensive to cut back, they'll cut back less. And in return, they'll pay a much higher share of the tax on on pollution that we levy. So that it's both fair, the, the people who are are emitting more pollution, pay a higher tax. It's efficient. The people who can cut back most cheaply are the ones who undertake the lion's share of the cutback effort. So, so on, on, on those grounds, the tax is, is really a very desirable instrument, and it cuts exactly in, in a parallel fashion for subsidies if we're trying to encourage people to do something that they don't naturally do enough of, subsidizing them. Uh, it gets the right people to do it. And, and does it in the most efficient way. I think when you think about taxes, though, everybody gets very angry. Oh, you're going to ta- take money away from me. And so they don't like it. I think it's been an act of gross political malpractice, the fact that people in various countries who have proposed carbon taxes haven't taken the time to explain carefully to voters that they would make the tax revenue neutral. That means take the revenue from the tax and give it back to the taxpayers. Most of the revenue would come from upper income individuals. They use much more energy than others. If you then took all the revenue that came in and gave an equal monthly check to middle and low income households, 90% of voters would get back more each month in that rebate check than they had paid in in carbon taxes. And so it would be 
you would think very easy for a politician to persuade voters, hey, we ought to do this. Uh, it's going to clean up the air and, and you're actually going to have more money to spend and you'll have an incentive to buy less carbon intensive things with your money. Uh, it, it's, it's a total winning approach, but we haven't done that. We've just said we're going to tax carbon and then they try to do it and they get voted out of office. So I think it's important not just that you adopt the right policies, but that you attend to what the distributional consequences of them are and try to compensate people who would be harmed unduly by them. If we were to give more attention to that, we, there are so many things we could do that we're not doing now. The revenue neutral um, point, I think, does need to be stressed. Robert, what is the mother of all cognitive illusions and why do so many of us suffer from it? I've been uh, saying for 35 or 40 years that the evidence from the, the large and contentious literature on human happiness makes one point probably more clearly than any other, and that's that in, in, in the West especially, we've long since passed a point where for upper-income people, further increases in many forms of private consumption don't really deliver much bang for the buck. So if all the mansions get were to double in size, the rich wouldn't be any happier at all. Probably they'd be less happy because the bigger mansions are more trouble. It would just raise the bar that defines how big a mansion they feel they need. That's wasteful compared to what the same money would do if we invested it in various ways in the public sphere. I've been saying that for a long time. It's consistent with all the available evidence on the question of, of what determines happiness from, from different things we might spend money on. But it raises the question, why don't we vote for people who will do that? Why don't we vote for politicians who will tax the wealthy more heavily and make the public investments that would benefit not just the wealthy but but everyone else? And And I didn't really address that question as early as I should have, but I've been thinking about it of late. And my answer to it tentatively is that it's because people suffer from what I'm calling the mother of all cognitive illusions. They think, the, the, the wealthy think, that if they had to pay more in taxes, that would make their lives less pleasant. They, they surely don't think that they wouldn't be able to buy everything they need. Of course, they'd still be able to do that. What are they worried about? They wouldn't be able to buy what they want. Well, once you've got everything you need, what do you care about? It's the special extras in life. Those are invariably things that are in short supply. The way you get them is to, is to outbid other people like yourself who will also want them. And what people never stop to realize is that when your taxes go up and the taxes of people like you go up, your relative bidding power is completely unaffected by that. So the same marvelous penthouse apartments with 360-degree views of the city end up in exactly the same hands as before. If people realize that, I don't think they would resist paying the taxes that we need to levy in order to finance investment in green infrastructure and, and, and maintain the, the social safety net and, and everything else that we're not attending nearly sufficiently to in the current environment, and they wouldn't have to give up anything important in the process. It's an illusion that they would suffer if they paid more. 
you offer a fascinating study about how to persuade people, because a lot of what we're discussing is intervention, but it's about social influence. And I love the study that you um, cite by a couple of psychologists, and this is crudely generalizing um, their observation. Um, they observe that conservatives tend to focus on the past, while liberals are more likely to focus on the future. Conservatives think the present is worse than the past, and liberals think the future will be worse than the present. So they both want change. Yeah, I think when you when you refer to today being worse than the past, conservatives are more likely to act on a policy that would would address that problem. It's an interesting asymmetry, and I think uh, the the first thing to be mindful of when you're trying to talk to somebody on the other side of the fence is that you not do harm. I mean, Al Gore would call attention to a study that said warming was occurring more rapidly than we had thought at first, and immediately the effect would be to harden attitudes among climate denialists. Uh, you don't want to make other people less likely to adopt the policies that we need to adopt by by advocating them. So, so, so what do you do? And I think one of the most informative findings from the literature on what makes for an effective exchange of ideas between people who don't agree to begin with is that you shouldn't try to persuade somebody that they're wrong about whatever it is they believe. They'll get they'll get uh, defensive and, and become less likely to adopt your view. Just just talk to them and listen attentively. The the main finding from this lit literature is the that the most powerful single step you can do talking to somebody from the other side of the fence is to ask the right question. So. If you're, if you're trying to persuade, uh, successful people that they have an obligation to invest in the next generation's, uh, chances to succeed like they do, you don't want to tell them that they were lucky, that they, they hired their workers from public schools that we paid for, that shipped their goods to market on public roads and so on. You know, when Obama reminded businesses, uh, successful business owners that, that they had that obligation, they, they thought he was telling them they didn't succeed on their own, that they didn't deserve the lofty positions that they held. Instead, it's just way more effective to ask successful people if they can recall examples of times they've enjoyed a little luck on their on their way to the top. They don't seem at all threatened or, or offended by the question. They they light up when they think of an example. They tell you about it. Remembering one kindles the memory of another and tell you about it too. And then suddenly they're suggesting investments we ought to be making to to help the next cohort coming along. So so yeah, it. it we don't do a very good job of talking to the other side, and I think we can do better. And that's actually what I wanted to uh, to conclude with. What is your one tip as to how to put peer pressure positively to work to improve our world? The the second draft of the book, by the time I got to it, I, I began to realize that the most important implications for the, the ideas in the book were uh, for the climate crisis. And as an economist, I'd often voice skepticism like most of my colleagues do about conscious consumption, the, the individual steps to reduce your carbon footprint, walking to work instead of driving, eating less meat, things of that sort. 
those those have negligible impact if you do them. If everybody else does them, that would be good. But if everybody else does them and you don't, it's the same effect either way. So so economists have always said, stop fo- focusing on those issues. Focus on the policies that we need to adopt to to really clean up the the climate mess, which is adopting a stiff carbon tax massive public investment in green energy and things of that sort. We can't do that as individuals. We need policy changes to do that. I've completely changed my mind about the efficacy of individual action in the course of writing the book. And it's because individual actions, it's true, they have very little direct effect, but they often spawn huge changes as others are influenced when they see you do them. Uh, That's particularly true in the adoption of solar panels and hybrid cars and things of that sort. The, 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 The effect of one move can be a hundredfold by the time it plays out. So, so, these individual actions are much more uh, consequential than I ever realized. But the more important reason is that taking these kinds of actions changes who we are, as, as Aristotle emphasized. We don't come into the world with uh, fixed identities and preferences. We we become who we are in the process of living our lives. And and when you take these steps. It changes you. It makes you into more, a, a more dedicated climate advocate. And, and that's the key step. As you become more of a climate advocate, then you're more likely to vote for, to campaign for, to donate to the politicians who will enact the policies that we need to enact in order to make a difference here. So uh, I, I, I still think we need the policies, but I don't think of individual steps to reduce carbon footprints as a distraction any longer. They're, they're important contributors to the, the dynamic that will ultimately give us those policies. It's a great final point to end on and a great example of how we can all put peer pressure to work. Robert Frank, your fantastic book, Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work. Thank you very much for speaking to me about it. Um, today, I recommend all of you pick up this book. What a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> and, um, and do, t- do check out our website if you want to look at, um, other uh, podcasts, intelligencesquare.com. I'm Linda Yu. Thank you very much for listening.